Welcome, 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 everyone to Office Hours. I'm here with the amazing co-host friend and enter BlaineBartlett.com. I've referred so many people to Blaine Bartlett for his business advisory and coaching. It's the easiest introduction that I make because it makes me look good. Everyone brags about how he has either changed their life or changed their business for the better. So thank you, Blaine, for always making me look good. Welcome to Office Hours, my friend. <laughs> always a pleasure. Absolute pleasure to be here. I enjoy this. Oh, me too. And we have a dear friend coming on here today, Lance, and he's such a dear friend. We're going to screw up his name. <laughs> E.C. <laughs> e. Haas. Is yeah. that right, E.C. Haas? E.C. Haas, close. Close. ECOs. If All you, right. If, ECOs. if you knew how many times I've heard different pronunciations over the years, that's so good. That's that's close enough. That's perfect. Well, I do I do remember the podcast though, which is the University of Diversity, uh, which is a university I've graduated from uh and have my own mindset about. And it's one of the top five uh 50 podcasts. Uh and of course you are also a selling author as well. Uh welcome as well to office hours lance thanks so much for having me david yeah i loved having you on well you know let's talk about adversity since you know your book and your podcast really deal with adversity um it's interesting because my relationship with adversity has changed uh with the mindset that i have uh, <laughs> do you categorize uh people's perspective of adversity or do you have schools or categories, some sort of uh, definition that you see people fall into when it comes to their perspective or definition of adversity? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people think of it as a bad thing. And what I have learned is that in my own experience, that everything that every bit of adversity that I go through, there's always a lesson right? There's always something on the other side of it. And I think that a lot of people look at it as like a roadblock. They, they, they jump into more of the victim mentality. Like, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening? And, and sort of blame it on circumstances. And I feel like for me, I've learned to really understand that this thing can really help me get to where I want to go. I just have to see the lesson in it. And I think for me, it's changed over the years too. And for us, you know, for me and, and my journey and the people that I've worked with or, you know, who have got impact from the show, once they realize that it's almost essential in our lives to go through these things, then it almost becomes like when you when it happens you're like okay great like what can i learn here what is what is this going to do for me like how can this help me grow and essentially like in order to level up you know you have to grow and in hindsight it's always like you look back and we talk about the things we went through and how we got there versus like the outcome so yeah i've i've really um it's funny because the word itself, it's, it's changed over the years as I've gone through my own stuff and talked about it so much. Yeah, yeah I, I love that. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a student of Stoic philosophy. I've studied it for years and, you know, David has heard me riff about this. <laughs> uh, yeah, Epictetus, who was one of the founders of the whole Stoic philosophy movement, you know, ancient Greek, uh, 
said that no one can ever know what you're capable of, not even yourself, if you've passed through life without an opponent and the opponent being adversity. Yeah. And that whole thing about, you know, yet, yet it's, it's the crucible that you actually forge a, a, a sense of being that, that, you know, where the pressure and the heat and everything is kind of in place there, that who you are actually has an opportunity to emerge. You know, I mean, it burns off the facade and you're left with, what do I need to do? Who do I need to be in order to have what I say I'd like to have? In your journey, Lance, um, and I'm not necessarily looking for a blow-by-blow description here, but how have you been able with your clients and uh, with the, the folks that you have on your podcast to, to pull out that notion that uh, I would not be where I am had I not gone through what I went through? Well, the beautiful thing is that from interviewing so many amazing people, I think that a lot of people see themselves in other people's stories. Mm-hmm. And that that's what I love about, you know, intimate conversations about hearing people's stories on how they got to where they are is that that story is what connects the person to believe in themselves that they're not alone and that there's possibility for them. And sometimes we think that because of what we're going through, that we're alone. And I think that's what happens is a lot of people feel like they're alone. But if you can hear somebody, their raw, honest story about what they went through, it's like, Oh, Oh, them too. Him too. It's like, ah, okay, then that allows them to realize that they can do the same. And I think that's just a subtle shift that stories have for people, including Mm -hmm. myself, you know, talking to people. It's it kind of happened by default. And that has been something that I've found to be impactful. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's good. And the last question before we bring Dax on um, is manufactured adversity so you know obviously uh i didn't manufacture although i take accountability for losing everything over 100 million dollars going bankrupt having to deal with different lessons and being promoted and protected in that perspective by it but so many people uh after they have had unexpected adversity uh and have promoted and protected themselves from that adversity they then manufacture adversity uh, to push themselves and promote themselves and protect themselves even further. Some with physical exceptions like the ultra marathoners or the Colin O'Brady's that'll go and cross Antarctica, you know, or hide in a cave for two weeks or you know, these types of manufactured adversity. But other people utilize ego and self sabotage to manufacture it uh, after they've experienced and succeeded from it. It's almost an addiction. Uh, where do you find those people? Because uh, I know you've written about mastering it. And then the podcast, I've heard some of the guests who seem to have sabotaged themselves with it or even manufactured it. Yeah, I think. I, I believe, and this is just my own personal opinion, is that when you start your day with something challenging, I have found that that is what brings more of a flow state when mm-hmm. I say I'm going to do this thing and then the rest of the day becomes easier. But some people, they think, 
I want to have an easy day, but it actually creates chaos by not having something that you do first thing that I've found. I found that it's almost like I can't connect to my body and I love breath work. So I like choose to do breath work in the morning and, you know, all the buzzwords, cold plunge and working out, whatever that is. I just think it's a good way to choose that thing to connect to yourself, to your higher spirit, whatever it is you believe. And I find that it just helps everything become easier throughout the day because you're going to get stuff thrown at you. So why not put on that body armor for the day, so to speak? That's what I look at it. I'm right-handed and that's why I always cut my right-hand finger first just to remind myself uh, of the adversity (laughs) and the challenging things. It's a symbolic and an effort that creates that uh, perfect of I'm an achiever and I'm going to enjoy the pursuit of my potential uh, an expert in adversity and allowing and utilizing that adversity as inspiration, motivation, and utilization of practical tools, both in his book and in his podcast, Mastering Adversity and the University of Adversity. Uh, check it out. Lance Isios. Isios? Easy close I gotta get my uh phonetics, uh the phonetic uh, <laughs> notes correct. Easyos, easyos. I love it. All right, Lance Easyos. We are old friends, we've known each other forever. I just haven't been able to I, I had a client once, Lance, and for literally three years called him Saul. I kept saying you better call Saul. And then I went to an event with Joe Dispenza that we put on, and he's like, Hi, I'm Saul. And I'm like, what do you mean your name is Saul? I've been three years calling you Saul. He's like, yeah, I didn't want to hurt your feelings. So <laughs> I, I would correct me so that you and I as we become better friends. Ezios, Lance Ezios. Check him out, LanceEzios.com. Of course, his podcast and his book is incredible. If you don't know and have a great relationship with adversity, Lance will help you figure that out. Uh, Blaine, come on Lance's podcast as well. It's exceptional. Good, thanks. Thanks, Thank Lance. You so Have a Merry Thanks Christmas. So much, guys. You too. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thank you. All right. It's not Dak Prescott, but it's Dax Cornelius, CEO of Bastion <laughs> <laughs> Transform. He's a neighbor of mine in Irvine, California. Oh, okay. Welcome to Office Hours, Dax. <clears throat> hey, thanks for having me, guys. Really happy to be here. Thank you so much. And thank you for your service. Uh, we certainly appreciate that uh, well, as well. Thanks for your tax dollars. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Um, you got you guys have a lot of employees, and you know through COVID and beyond, that seems to be the biggest challenge that we have as people. And you are an experienced marketing leader, you're experienced leader, uh, and you are a selfless, compassionate leader. Um, what have you seen uh, to work today? in managing all those people and understanding the emotional connection that you need, not just as a marketer, uh, but a leader in general, internally in marketing to your own employees. Yeah, it's a phenomenal question and, and it's a fully loaded question. I think I've got a fully caffeinated answer. Uh, and I, I mean it from the bottom of my heart. Uh, I think us as leaders, when we get to a point to where we can really start to align what's in our heads and what's in our hearts. And more importantly, what's in the heads of us as leaders and what vision we have and what path and direction we have for our organizations. 
and how that relates to the hearts of our workforce? That's a big, compelling question. And I think in order to answer it, we actually have to take a step back to what we all just came through, which was a global pandemic. And during that global pandemic, there were other factors involved, like we're in this massive digital era, tech, AI, that is somewhat exacerbating all the things that we are feeling and thinking. And when I say we went through the pandemic, really what we went through was, was a mandatory homework assignment It uh, <laughs> pause. So it didn't matter if you lived in an indigenous space or a dense area like downtown New York or Los Angeles, it put everyone on assignment to take pause with really reevaluating what's important to them. Uh, and I think many of us, um, whether, and that's what was the beauty of this, whether you were a baby boomer or a Gen Y or a Gen Z, we came to the conclusion that we weren't necessarily happy at work. And it changed a lot of people's attitudes forever. And I would call it less of a generational shift and much more of a, I would say, a cultural transition as to what people are willing to accept in their lives when arguably they're spending more time at work than they are with their own loved ones. So putting that in context and in, in, in getting to the answer of your question, what was it that really started to align what's in the heads of leadership and what's in the hearts of workforce? And those three things that came out in a study we did that I have found, whether I'm flying an F-16 from 30,000 feet or whether you're doing a study on uh, a, a surgeon in an operating room or an F1 McLaren pit lane or an orchestra, or how about this, a single mother raising children by herself. Um, the type of intellectual capacity and emotional intelligence that you must have, three things came to surface. And this may, not to sound trite, or not, there's some devil in the detail with this, is it really came to what people are required to have today, uh, the must-haves that they got out of the pandemic when they were at home with their families, deciding what it was going to take for them to come back to work and give their all for somebody. It was clarity, clarity in what it was they were doing and why they were doing it. It was empowerment that they were given a role to actually make a freaking difference and make it not only a difference, but complete the project. And then lastly, a growth mindset. Um, and I'll get into some of those details if you want to get into some of those details. But whether we're talking about the survey that we did across the U.S. or whether we're talking about the outcomes of that survey, that clarity, empowerment, and mindset really became a common thread across what everyone learned in, in, in the pandemic and what they wanted from their new employers. You know, I, I love, I'd, I'd like to you see your research data on that. I'm fascinated by that. Um, it kind of dovetails very nicely with a lot of the work that I'm doing right now uh, with leading at the mid levels in an organization, as opposed to developing leaders at the top, not to eschew one for the other, but there's a difference there. Uh, and they pay attention to different things. Um, the idea of, and, and this is one of the things that I know is true for Bastion, is that 
you know, you're you're looking to be, and you actually are the preferred solution for brands out there that are looking for better connectivity with their customers. Mm-hmm. How does this research data actually coincide with that yeah, aspiration? Love I, I love it. It, it, it it's, I'm so glad you asked that because it's it's really what I, I think as leaders, whether you're an employee, whether you're an owner of a business. For all of us to have equity in what we're doing in life, our purpose, our why, um, this is mine. Because in Bastion Agency, whether you're talking domestically or international, whether you're talking working for Fortune 50 companies and handling their uh, their communications and their connectivity and relevance with their target audiences, domestically, internationally, from Fortune 50s all the way down to funded startups, um, Bastion Transform and the work we do in aligning the, the, the leaders of organizations and their workforce, it came about because, as I said to you, we spent a lot of time doing integrated Marcoms for large brands. But what we ended up finding is we have the luxury, the honor, the benefit of walking a lot of hallways of these brands that we work for. And what's crazy, guys, is we saw a lot of dysfunction. We saw, we we were shocked at sometimes the larger they were, the bigger brand they had, the more dysfunction and chaos that were walking in those hallways. And we said, hang on a minute. If we've got some executives within Bastion that understand the art of communication, but also have entrepreneurial backgrounds, and I would call us a cross-section in Bastion Transform between, say, a McKenzie and a uh, an Anthony Robbins, right? Highly mm-hmm. motivational. We know a lot of things that we want to do in life. We believe in the law of attraction, but at the same time, we understand what a PL is and what overheads are and what cuts are and how do you keep a business growing. We said, you know what? Maybe there's a parallel here. Maybe there's a way in which <clears throat> we start a business called Bastion Transform. The benefit for us here in the U.S. is We've had Bastion Transform working overseas for quite some time now and making quite an impact. And so we said, you know what, let's expand that to the U.S. And we started that offering in the U.S. And it's been it's been amazing the impact when you actually see that click between leaders and their workforce and they're all aligned. Because let's face it, we all come from different ideologies and backgrounds and in, in philosophies and capabilities and talents. But when you can get an engineer and hmm. a salesperson and an artist and a coder and all these different people rowing in the same boat for the same direction, now you see collaboration. But what you will see as a common thread across all of that is clarity in the mission mm-hmm. with the staff and a growth mindset that aligns and unites everybody within that business. Love the we answer. Just- Thanks, Max. And just to finish up, you know, in the common thread department, one of the unique aspects of Bastion that I saw was the idea within the context of marketing protection. Now, I know, you know, you're a pilot and uh, obviously being of service to our country. uh, In what respect are you utilizing protection in this collaboration? Uh, Because an innate, obvious emotion is safety within the context of marketing which a lot of people ignore in the emotional connection aspect so i was curious 
why protection was included in some of the key capabilities of this new collaborative marketing leadership that you guys provide. Yeah, it, it's a it's it's a great uh, it's a great statement. You know, when you talk about protection, um, I think it really goes down to some of those clarity those things that we talked about um, when you're when you're talking about empowerment of people, you're talking about ownership, and you're talking about foundational confidence or better performance, uh, quicker to adapt. Um, and when you're talking about mindset you're talking more about belongingness or inclusion. Um, and, you know, Bastion, the name itself, whether you're talking about the four corners of a, uh, a protective castle where you can come back and defend. Um, for us in Bastion, it was about defending the hearts and the minds of a workforce that really want to do good work. They're just done being told how to do it. They want those leaders to tell them what is the outcome they want and let that workforce figure out how they're going to solve it. Um, or that's the empowerment part or let that workforce decide on how they're going to solve that problem. So I, I think the protection side of, of what we do within Bastion Transform is really about, you know, as we've all learned in life, and I'll tell you, David and Blaine, whether you're flying a a fighter from 30,000 feet in combat at night lights out with MBGs on breathing like Darth Vader and your cockpit lights up like a Christmas tree when a SA six is launched at you and you still got to employ those weapons on time on target or whether you're in a boardroom or whether you're talking to your newest hire who is really clueless on what's happening and really just trying to figure out their life. I think what we've all come to learn is people will follow your soul before they follow your role. Yep. Um, it is people want to believe that you care before they follow you. So in other words, people don't care about what you know as a leader until they know that you care. And, and yeah. that's the foundation. So 80% what we do with our heads and our hearts and 20% what we do with our hands and feet. That's what this is all about. That's what that protection part is about. It really is about what's in the heads and the hearts, getting that alignment. Um, because the tech part, you know, the the codes and the gibbets and the robots and the AI, and the chat, GBT, it can all do so much. But, you know, our brains are 200,000 years old and we still are telling ourselves stories when we sleep. So we want to be told a good story from the leaders of our organization that we can believe in and that we can get yeah. behind and that we can fight for and that we can come to work for and that's the key that's the key that's what protection's all about i love it yeah players win games coaches win players it's the soul not the role yeah. uh thank you so much uh for your leadership as well as your service we wouldn't be here without people like you check out bastion transform us.bastion.com a unique aspect in collaborative marketing and leadership, a great company around the world. Come back and join us again soon. We appreciate it, Dax. Thanks for having Thanks, me. Dax. Take care. See you guys soon. Uh -huh. All right. It's a day, a day of heroes and another extraordinary man of service that has given us and provided us freedom here during the holidays. Don't ignore 
the options, opportunities, and touches of fear we have in America because of people like Richard McPherson, who's joining us, CEO of Idaho Energy and a subsidiary of Micronuclear. Uh, and we're talking about a cost-effective way of providing energy. And more importantly, this man's been of service for over 20 years, and he understands uh, not only protection, which is obviously a key component in energy, but prosperity, security, and peace, uh, all three much needed today. Richard, thank you for accommodating us and joining us on Office Hours. David, thank you very much for having me. So I want to well, go not, join Blaine on Woodby Island. <laughs> yeah, please come on down. <laughs> yeah, me, me too. I've been there. I've been there. It's an amazing thing. And, uh, you know, New Year has been around a long time and you've studied it uh, now incredibly for a long time. It, you know, I think 60 years uh, you've been involved somehow uh, in nuclear power. And so uh, 63. 63. So, yeah. Wow. <clears throat> and yet it, it is constantly evolving. Uh, where are we at today uh, in the idea of nuclear energy being secure and safe and providing us peace? That's a good question. Um, President Eisenhower had a ton of experience, life's experience, including in the military. He's a 1915 graduate of the West Point. He didn't deploy during World War II, but he got in World War I, but he got into logistics. So he understood the importance of logistics and energy. And he was especially there because this was a time of we're going from coal to oil. So we taught a whole lot of young men and women how to drive ships, fly airplanes, drive trucks, et cetera. <clears throat> he went through the 20s and 30s, went through World War II, uh, went through the Korean War. And during the Korean War as president in 1950, he saw the first civilian reactor go critical and make power up in Idaho, where I am now. In early 1953, he saw the second reactor go critical and make power. That was for the first submarine that Admiral Rickover signed a contract for in November of 1948. And that reactor went on to power the USS Nautilus. I came in the Navy nuclear power program in 1963. And I spent 20 years directly in the program, retired as a lieutenant uh, you know, commander in the Navy after going in as enlisted as E-1 because I dropped out of college because I was so smart at 19. Never <laughs> let a 19-year-old boy make a decision. There's only two things a 19-year-old boy wants, and one of them is beer. <laughs> so I didn't stop there. I didn't ask for it, but I, people have had me involved in nuclear ever since. I was asked by the State Department in 1989, excuse me, 1988, uh, if I would represent the United States at the International Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna, Austria. And it was as a result of Chernobyl. The Soviets went to Hans Blix in 1987 and said, our people don't trust us and we need help. Hans Blix was smart enough to call the Secretary of Energy, who was a retired admiral by the name of James D. Watkins, who had been the Chief of Naval Operations. And I had known Jim since he was about a lieutenant commander. Um, <clears throat> Six Nation 
group was formed within the International Atomic Energy Agency to study nuclear fuel cycle facilities, the environment and public opinion for four years. I was the US representative to it. The other nations represented was Canada, the UK, Spain, Switzerland, um, and Canada and the Soviet Union. For the first year, the Soviet Union representative had a KGB babysitter. So that was interesting. Um, I've worked in over 30 countries. I've tried to retire uh, several times. They keep calling me back into nuclear. And now I'm up to my eyeballs in it. And it's finally a lot of fun. The reason I say that is, is because after 9-11, I was asked to come back to Washington, D.C. And I did 100 times when working on something called critical infrastructure protection. Mm-hmm. Well, we didn't know anything about a molten salt nuclear battery. Then we didn't have a perfect uh, nuclear power source. Nineteen, Early 2018, I was introduced to Dr. Paul Morado by Dr. Richard Christensen. Dr. Paul Morado says, I've designed a reactor that is natural circulation, has no pumps and no valves. I was hooked. Because now what I just heard somebody tell me was we now had an ideal nuclear power source. And I had been working with people on um, uh, everything to do with critical infrastructure, including the economics of it and the risks of it from uh, China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. So I just heard that we now have a power source that will fulfill our needs. So the bottom line is what the, just the United States alone, the United States needs to shift from the current system, which is a grid system, going into local mm-hmm. um, uh, systems that serve our houses and our buildings, and we need to go into a microgrid system. We identified that right after 9-11. And the United States needs 7,000 plus of them. 67,000 plus uh, microgrids that are powered by uh, nuclear. And a microgrid has three components. Has the power source, has the cabling. Cabling is readily available in the United States. And it has to have electronic equipment and electrical equipment that's electromagnetic pulse or cyber, or excuse me, or uh, uh, solar hardened, which is fairly easy to do. And there's a group out there that knows how to do that. And I have suggested to them that they go spend time with the uh, manufacturing industries for electrical and electronics, because they have everything that the electronic and man- electronic and electrical uh, manufacturing folks have to offer. Uh, last week, I was in two different meetings, one in Colorado, one in uh, one of the national laboratories where the first molten salt nuclear battery will go. Molten salt nuclear battery is simple. It's small. To put it in perspective, one of them would fit in pretty much the window behind me from the floor to the ceiling. And it would give you 10 megawatts for 10 years autonomously. Hmm. Yeah, Richard, just you know, real quick, I'm on the board of directors of the World Business Academy, and microgrid has been something we've been championing for about a decade now. Um, and, I, and, and we've had conversations about fission reactors. Uh, and I'm, I'm, the question I have here has to do with the emergence right now, and it's seemingly uh, the uh, validated emergence of fusion as something that is, and, and I just saw a, a piece on the Newswire today about 
scientists have actually replicated the uh, primary experiment three times now with basically the same results, you know, basically saying it, it worked. Now, I haven't read the full study yet, and I haven't gotten the white paper around it, but where does fusion potentially fit in? Potentially, big word there, potentially post, fit in. Post-2100. Post-2100? Yeah. It's that far it's out. material science issue. Yeah. Okay, just the, just we have duplicated, numerous people have duplicated fusion, the same fusion experiments. But fusion is a material science issue. Um, people are foolishly putting money into fusion right now. It should be going into fission. Um, I'm not saying that we shouldn't continue the research and development. We absolutely should. But in order right now, so under the Reagan administration, under his space war program, that we needed a material that would give us 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit. We haven't made any advancements since then. In order for you to, in order for us to have a market clearing uh, energy uh, price of energy or any energy that, for that matter, from fusion, we need to reach 100 million degrees, 4,000 degrees to 100 million degrees. Now, depending on who you talk to in fusion when they're trying to get money out of you, they'll tell you all kinds of stories. But I have a friend of mine that I met in 1975. I was on active duty in the Navy at the submarine base there in San Diego. And I was asked by Dr. Masood Sinmad, who got his start in World War II in nuclear. And he heard me give a talk. And he said, would you please come and join? Are you a member of the local ANS, American Nuclear Society section? I said, no. He said, would you please come and join? We need you. So because I, he's a nice, nice man and very bright. So I liked him. So I joined. So I met a young man there who was working for a company in San Diego in fusion. And a very bright guy, PhD, uh, very dedicated. Basically, he started in fusion when he was in high school. So that was 1975. So 1987, he calls me up and he says, I'm leaving the fusion program and I'm going to the space reactor program. So I said, how can you do that? I said, you've been in fusion your entire life. That's your life. He said, the chance of me operating a power reactor on Mars during my lifetime is greater than me operating a fusion reactor on Earth. So I've talked to him within the past week because of some things that are going on somewhere else in the world. And I said, you know, I don't like to bother you he said, it's post-2100. Uh, yeah, I do that. So I always I do go a lot back of work to with... material science issue. We've had a yeah. downturn in the rate in the rate of advancements in, uh, in material science because we've had a downturn in nuclear. We've had a downturn in aerospace, a downturn in defense. What we need to do is we need to protect America first. And we need to get to uh, microgrids that are powered by nuclear power to do that. And um, uh, this was a program that uh, a group of us put together right after 9-11. We had refined it uh, from 9-11 uh, to 2018. When I met Dr. Paul Murata and he said, design the reactor that's natural circulation, has no pumps and no valves, I was hooked. 
I have operated nuclear, uh, my first power plant that I operated, nuclear power plant that I qualified on to operate was up here in Idaho in 1964. And it was called A1W. It's basically the third uh, two nuclear power plants that were in the USS Enterprise, the aircraft carrier. And then I went on to operate several others. Uh, I've been in the commercial side. I've been in the international side. Like I said, I represented the U.S. for four years at the International Atomic Energy Agency, where I had an education there that no American has had. And that is a nuclear fuel cycle facilities, the environment, and public opinion. No American has ever had the luxury of that kind of uh, education. And I chose to go see about every nuclear fuel every nuclear fuel su supply facility or conversion facility in the world. China wouldn't let me in. Soviet <laughs> Union restricted our access. Chernobyl twice, and I've been to most of the others. So. It may be now. I'm an all I'm an all energy person. Nuclear friends of mine thought I nuclear friends of mine thought I jumped the fence when I supported the clean the Department of Energy's clean coal technology demonstration program in the mid 80s, and I reminded them I'm an all energy person. We cannot be arrogant. We have to look at every possible energy source, and we have to exploit it for its highest and best use. Now, having said that, we are squandering um, coal, gas, and oil. They are far too valuable to burn the way we do. Uh, same way with some of the uh, uranium. There's a fuel, fuel out there that the Department of Energy has probably got 2 or $3 billion of taxpayers' money invested. In. It was a good idea 30 years ago, 40 years ago. It's called Triso Fuel, T-R-I-S-O Fuel. Anytime you see anybody using triso fuel, what you're seeing is somebody who's squandering away our resources because that's a once through fuel and then you have to throw it away. We cannot afford that loss of uranium. <clears throat> look at our commercial fleet out there today. We have about 200,000, uh, excuse me, we have about 100,000 metric tons of partially spent fuel. It's not waste, it's an asset that we need to convert into usable fuel, which we can do. With a molten salt nuclear battery, we're, we have put together the entire fuel cycle from cradle to grave, from mining all the way to the end use of the products. And um, we're not going to waste anything. We're not going to waste anything. We're a group of guys that are a lot older. Most came from the Navy nuclear program. We know about every reactor out there. We know about efficiency. And you hear people talk too much about efficiency. And they need to stop thinking about efficiency when it comes to nuclear. Nuclear is in a class of its own because of the energy density. The energy density of nuclear compared to oil, gas, and coal is, is amazingly different. What we need is operating plants. Um, and like I said, when I got started, we've identified over 60 7,000, the need in the United States, if we're going to save America, have a safe America, we need 67,000 plus nuclear powered grids. And that's the bottom line. It's been the bottom line since now, since shortly after 9-11. Um, and I'm just happy that I'm able to use my life's experience on what I'm doing now.
Beautiful. And we are certainly grateful for that. I know Blaine especially is grateful because it's very rare that uh, he is not the oldest and wisest person in the room on this show. So we're, we're blessed you're here. Uh, we finally have a new mark uh, to strive to. And with wisdom and age comes the understanding of human nature and the application of technology, micronuclear technology it is, micronucleartech.com, uh, always providing and being of service to keep our country secure. Thank you so much, Richard. Please come back. Uh, I have a lot more questions, uh, and we definitely want you back, uh, including I want to ask next time about your opinion on Oppenheimer. So thanks for joining us. We'll see you soon. You can call me anytime, even offline. And Oppenheimer was an interesting character. <laughs> yeah, I want to hear that right you. now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, my friend. Have a great Thank holiday. You, Thank you for joining us. <laughs> How how do you feel not to be the oldest one here, buddy? Hey, I age is just a number. <laughs> it's just age a number. Is a number. You, you don't always look like the oldest. Uh, hopefully, Sarah she uh, made a surprise visit at the end. So I like a quick uh, interview about the president of Exponential Fitness, and uh, she also is a neighbor of ours here, which is a rarity. We're usually around the world. We got two Orange County uh, yeah. people here, a California native. That's a rarity like my wife, fourth generation. Sarah Luna is in the house. Thank you for joining us. Hi, David. Us. Thanks Hi. for having me. How are you? I am doing great. Uh, it is really refreshing to have you here. We were stuck into the nuclear tech uh, of 60 <laughs> years of nuclear tech and beyond. Uh, this a I'm much more familiar with. learned a little bit, so... <laughs> Yeah, pretty cool, but I know much more about what you do in exponential fitness, uh, your commitment to health uh, and to physical longevity, and and is one in which uh, both uh, Blaine and I are in this uh, mission. Uh, you're in the the Pure Bar franchise, but this total body experience is really what I'm most interested in. We've gone and come a long way, not just in nuclear tech. But in fitness, you know, it used to be, you know, chest drives, back buys, legs and shoulders, heavyweight. Uh, and yet we have a much better way to take care of ourselves. Uh, and you've been operating, you know, one of the leading uh, fitness franchises. What are some of the key aspects in uh, exponential fitness bar uh, Pilates that makes a total fitness experience? Unlike when I grew up in... Uh, we had a very limited focused experience when it came to fitness. Oh, well, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, <laughs> so exponential fitness. Not as the newer tech guy, trust yeah, me. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but, you know, ultimately exponential fitness is a portfolio company of fitness franchise concepts. Um, we have 11 brands um, just in a couple of weeks. So we've acquired Lindora um, starting in January. So about 10 days until we bring that into the fold officially. Um, but health and wellness brands across 11 different brands. And as the franchisors, as, as Exponential, we really specialize in providing small operators or entrepreneurial operators to come in and operate within the health and wellness space. And we provide them with real estate and construction development assistance, as well as sales and marketing assistance. Of course, the in-studio workout, um, as well as sales and marketing. Um, but today, fitness is really about combining 
um, a fitness experience with community entertainment and um, a holistic health and wellness approach. So it's all of that that our customers are looking for and being able to do that within the four walls of a brick and mortar operation, as well as, um, you know, potentially on the go, that could be at their house on a VR headset, that could be in a hotel, that could be um, on a corporate campus or a university. So Exponential really looks at um, finding the customer where they're at and helping them meet their health and wellness goals, no matter where they are um, throughout their journey and throughout their day. Yeah, the idea, there's a word that you used uh, just a moment ago about community. And I'd like you to talk a little bit more about the development of community as part of the process of whole body fitness. You know, because, you know, I mean, yeah, I was a gym rat long ago, uh, you know, and I would just go to the gym by myself and, you yeah. know, just you know, do what I did. Uh, and then I'd go take a shower and go to work. Uh, but this notion of community, it didn't apply necessarily in my experience in my generation. And, you know, I'm dating myself when I say my generation. Uh, but I, I'm, I'd be very interested to know how much a part of the whole process of health and well-being, particularly physical fitness and that sort of thing, is dependent on the development of a community uh, to support. Yeah, I think a community is, um, I mean, it can be both accountability, but then yeah. also social, right? Um, and you're right that the fitness industry used to be, I show up at the same time every single day and I work out next to the person that is also there at the same time. Um Maybe you know what music they listen to or how fast they run on the treadmill. But beyond that, you don't know them outside of they're the same guy that goes to the gym. Right. And then you might see them at the grocery store and it's like, whoa, <laughs> I know you, but I don't really know you. Yeah. Um, within our studios, um, you know, the instructors are teaching to a small group of people who are working out at the same time, typically at a consistent schedule or basis um, and providing everyone a musically driven experience where everyone's kind of driving together, you know, at row house, we call it pulling and rowing together mm -hmm. um, at, at cycle at cycle bar. They're going to be looking at, you know, the stats and some of it is competitive, you know, so that drives community. Um, we do celebration milestones. So in Pier bar, um, as an example, if someone has hit their hundredth class, the studio celebrates them. And oftentimes oh, that happens with, you know, 10 of their other best friends in the, in the studio. And it, it's not just a silent celebration, but it's maybe um, a digital celebration. So they log into their application and they get confetti and balloons Then they show up at the studio and they get sticky socks um, and a t-shirt um, and maybe a bottle of, of wine or something. But the point is, is that what we tend to find is, um, these communities start to form. And by the way, the operator typically lives within their community as well. Mm -hmm. So they're going to maybe church with the same people that are working out um, within their communities, or they're taking their kids to school at the same place where they work out. Um, so you end up seeing people all within the same, you know, several mile radius, and you're now doing these activities together. Um, or you meet people for the first time within the four walls of, of our studios. But the point is, is that as you're driving together and working out together consistently and the instructor's using your name and you're seeing that people are having these milestones and successes within the studios, all of a sudden now you're inviting each other to birthday parties and weddings and baby right. showers. And you're doing life together. You're doing more than just working out, but you're, you're doing everything that is part of your lifestyle. 
Love it. Thank you. <laughs> Me too. Sarah, you know, running such a successful large business it, in the M&A roll up side of what you're doing with 11 different types of franchises and hundreds uh, beneath each of those. Um, what I find really interesting is a parallel between my career and yours is that uh, you went to school and got an MBA. And after you received your degree, you pursued dance. Uh, and in the end, pursuit is what created uh, the differentiator in your skills and knowledge that you then applied the principles that you learned uh, in the academia of going to Chapman and getting your MBA. And uh, for me, I studied law and business and went to the internet. Uh, but when people ask me, how did I get the job running the most notable sports agency in the world? It was because Lee Stenberg had a vision that technology and finance, uh, raising money, uh, was going to be two key components in sports. AJ, and he's right, by the way. He's absolutely right. If you look at the trillions of dollars in the sports industry, they're relative more to technology uh, and finance than, than anything uh, about sports law. Uh, what advice would you give to the more academic uh, business and law and engineering people about when they graduate developing skills and knowledge that may be outside of what they've learned in school, but more to utilize as a directive to the capabilities that they learned in school to benefit them in the long run? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so I actually started as a dancer and then retired um, and needed another career. Um, and that's where I ended up in business school. And it was at that point that I had the intense discipline of being a professional dancer mixed within the knowledge of being an MBA and coming out and going, okay, I've got two very different educations. Now, how can I combine that together to drive um, a career that that is unique and um, also very specific to myself? So, you know, I think the important takeaway there is walk through as many doors as you possibly can. Yeah. And at the end of the day, do something that you're passionate about, right? I never thought that I would be in the role that I'm in today had I set out and said, I'm going to do a traditional MBA to corporate job and climb the corporate ladder. But rather, I started with um, Club Pilates because I was a Pilates instructor and loved teaching um, and decided to give sales a try. And so I came in as a national sales director and then yeah. continued to grow um, in my career and role as new opportunities came up and I just continue to say yes and show up every day and, um, learn about the business and take on new challenges. So, but for me, it's, it's making a choice to come to work every day and do what I love to do. And, um, you know, mixing both sides of my brain, I guess, <laughs> into the career. That's great. I love to continue to say yes. Right. When I look for people in my own organization and outside, uh, they have that common denominator of, yeah, I was kind of just said yes, 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 yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, opportunities, options, and touches of favor come to those that have open minds, open hearts, and open hands. And you're a perfect illustration of that uh, as an amazing leader. And I'm blessed to have you in our backyard here in Orange County and hope to do more with you. We'd love to have you on our show. And uh, you're a great example, especially for women entrepreneurs, what we can do. Uh, and should be doing in the corporate world as well by applying the passion, the purpose, 
and still getting greater profitability. Congratulations, Sarah. Please come back and join us and have a wonderful holiday. Thank you. You too. Merry Christmas. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Sarah. Love the, Thank love the conversation. You. Take care. <laughs> Bye. Bye. All right. She's amazing. I, uh, you know, we're very flexible here. I'm a couple minutes late. Uh, you know, we ask our friend, uh, Mr. McPherson, the time, and we got the entire history of the clock, which was beautiful. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, luckily, Sarah squeezed us in at the end. Uh, yeah. She was phenomenal. What what a super success story. I will thank uh, our guests, Lance, Dax, Sarah, and of course, Richard. Uh, there's a lot there to unpack. Oh so take away the day. What do you got? Well, I think I'm going to keep it real simple today. I am going to you know, pick up on something that's, you know, Sarah said, just follow your passion. Uh, I mean, it's trite to say it, but yeah, you know, when you start looking at it through that lens, I mean, you know, you, you look at what Sarah did. Uh, I mean, just this is where I go. This is what I do. Uh, I show up. I keep doing it. And, and certainly Richard, I mean, you know, beginning at 63 and he's still going and that's, there's passion, you know, that um, what I loved about the conversation uh, uh, with, with Richard was the passion that was yeah, evidenced in everything that he was talking about. It was not only yeah. knowledgeable, but he was really, he was really present. And then with Bastion, uh, it's you know, kind of the same sort of a deal. You got, you know, your, your three things here, clarity, uh, growth and uh, empowerment. Yeah. You tap into, you know, what's important to people and they show up, they show up and they start working. So, um, I, I think the whole idea of just, you know, you know, keeping focused on what you want and yeah, adversity will happen. And then you know, Lance addressed that, you know, shit's going to happen. <laughs> but if I'm clear about what it is, you know, the, for the sake of what, for the sake of what am I here for the sake of what am I doing, what I'm doing, that passion will get me over the hump. So uh, it's, it's, uh, it's often talked about, but uh, I think that's for me, the takeaway and the theme for today. I love it. Mine's real simple. And through the different histories uh, of Lance and Dax and Sarah and Richard, some longer and some shorter. But what I always recognize and why I love studying careers and paths of careers from the inception to the culmination of someone like Richard's career where he just can't stop, uh, human nature never changes. And those people who pursue their potential no matter what age they are and what stage they are in experience, situation, knowledge, and relationship capital, super do their potential will find great joy, fulfillment, and purpose. And most of the time, if they desire, even profitability. And yeah. it's a great lesson that you and I have both learned on our path of passion, purpose, and profitability. I want to thank you, Blaine. I won't have you back on till after the holiday here and probably before yep. the new year's, but I know you'll be with our good friends, Cam and, and, uh, and Liz. And I'm blowing. Yes, Liz. Thank you. Two great <laughs> entrepreneurs themselves. So please send my love and I send my love to you and Cynthia. Have a wonderful Christmas and I'll see you on the other side. Absolutely. You. You're amazing. BlaineBartlett.com. If you want amazing, Go ahead and find my friend Blaine, BlaineBartlett.com. He's changing lives and changing business. Uh, appreciate him. Thanks for joining me, buddy. Thanks, buddy. Have a wonderful holiday. Give Julie a big hug and the girls and Miles. Yeah, all my love. You got it. 
All right, everyone. There's only one thing we got left. That's Friday training. Our 25th holiday training will be seen tomorrow at 6 a.m. Pacific time, 9 a.m. Eastern time. It is a holiday training that has evolved from giving, receiving, and witnessing to appreciation, acknowledgement, learning how to ask and receive, and now the meaning. Giving the light, the love, and the lessons, the meaning of giving, witnessing, giving, receiving, and witnessing, the meaning of acknowledgement and appreciation and asking, the meaning of giving training is tomorrow at 9 a.m. If you're not one of the over 100,000 people registered for training tomorrow, then go ahead and email me, david at melcher.com. We got a lot of travel coming up, Vegas, Santa Clara, Miami, Nashville. Go ahead, join our text community. Be alerted where we're going to be. Come and join us with Dane Cook. Come and join us with Joe Montana, Gary V, Tim Story, so many more. Please join us in our community of people that want to help each other and know people that can help each other. It's 949-298-2905 or email me, david at dmelter.com. I want to thank the producer of our shows. She's not smiling behind her. She looks like she had a stressful day. Didn't even have time to do her hair. That's Raluca. We're going to see you tomorrow at our holiday party. I guarantee I'll put a big smile on your face after a couple shots of Jaeger. Gigi, you will be missed. Our assistant producer, uh, she can drink and think at the same time. We are always blessed to have you there. And he made his bed. The associate producer himself, Ethan, we are blessed to have you, all three of you. Thank you so much for joining us. Four extraordinary guests and an amazing show and an amazing co-host. Remember, most importantly, especially you three, be more interested than interesting. Be kind to your future self and do good deeds. We'll see you six time tomorrow. Thanks so much.